Today's episode is not a typical episode you hear on my show, but nevertheless, an important topic that impacts so many people around the world. My brave and courageous guest shares her personal story about domestic abuse and sexual assault that led her to a path of healing and helping other women and men begin to heal from trauma. Jillian Coburn is an entrepreneur, inventor, writer, and mother of three who is passionately committed to supporting and elevating women who have nowhere to turn and living under the shadows of domestic violence. Discover your inner trust to inspire yourself and empower others. Hey there, sister. Welcome to the Social Media for Mompreneurs podcast. I'm your host, Allison Scholes. And I am on a mission to help mompreneurs like you ditch the Instagram overwhelm and take control of your time on the app and build an extraordinary brand and business, but still be fully present with your family and just be crazy happy with your life. This show is filled with Instagram strategies, marketing hacks, branding and business tips with a side of coffee and Jesus. If you're ready for some juicy content, you know what to do. Hand your kiddos those tablets, Open those juice boxes, grab your coffee, whiskey, or wine, and let's dive in. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show. And today I am really excited to introduce you to Jillian because we are not actually going to be talking about so much entrepreneurship today or what it's like to be online and be successful. We're going to be talking about a topic that actually I've never spoken about on my show And I think it's a topic that we know is out there, but we don't talk enough about it. And we are going to talk about Jillian's work as an advocate for women of sexual assault and domestic abuse. I know this is not one of my typical episodes, but since there are so many women in my audience, I felt that this was a necessary conversation to have. And I hope after listening to Jillian today, you are going to be inspired and empowered to not only support yourself, but support others that are in this situation. So I know that was a long-winded introduction, Jillian. So welcome (laughs) to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here and allowing me to have the floor to talk about a not so, um, it's a touchy subject for some, right? Some people will avoid it. Some people will be like, I don't want to talk about that. Or, oh, it's never happened to me. Well, you know what? Silence is probably the most destructive thing I could think of. And to be in a silence place and not have a floor to speak when they're being abused at home, possibly they're being sexually abused. You'll see that a lot in foster care homes. If you're being emotionally abused, if you're being mentally abused, if you're being financially abused, if you're being spiritually abused, no one really has someone to go to. My first experience with abuse happened when I was 15 years old and I didn't even know that I was being abused. And it was with my first boyfriend and he was about five years older than I was. And that should have been a red flag. And my first abuse happened in Butte La Rose in Louisiana. It's a small little area where Bayou girls go and go wave running and get on the boats, have a good time. And he had a lot of alcohol problems and he threw a beer bottle at me and was cursing me out and the police came. And that was my first experience of abuse. 
fast forward to my first marriage. I got married at a very young age. I was 18 years old, had my first child at 18 years old. I come from a very Catholic family. And so I've been told my entire life, stick it out. You got this, you know, don't, don't give up, you know, back in the days, people were told to stay in relationships like that. Mm -hmm. And I don't think anybody should be tied down into a volatile relationship because it really affects your frontal lobe, your development of that and how you react and trauma gets instilled in our bodies. And it later shows up in a very terrible way. Well, abuse happened after abuse, after abuse. And I really didn't understand how to get out. And so I decided that I needed to write a book about it. And I wanted to write a book as a friend because I didn't have many friends back. I lost all my friends. I got pregnant at a young age. I went straight into college. I was living with an alcoholic and a drug addict. My dad was dying. A lot of things were going on logistically in my home that I had no one to turn to. My mom was grieving the death of her husband. It was just a lot of dynamics that I had no one to turn to, but God, to be quite honest. And after triumphing through all that experience and marrying my husband, I wanted to provide a reader to actually understand what I went through. And I wanted to provide steps that were safe steps and give them resources so that they could use that I never had. I spent all this money on therapy. I spent all this money on, you know, getting myself better. I wanted to share that knowledge because a lot of times women are afraid to go talk to maybe, you know, a parent or even an aunt, an uncle, a cousin, because they're afraid that what they may say may go back to the partner And it may turn very, very physical. And the worst part about getting out of a domestic violence relationship is leaving. It's the most lethal amount of time. So in my book, I explain how to get out safely, what steps to take. And again, I wanted the reader to understand someone who actually has been through it, what they did. And maybe they could share something with me, what I could do differently and share with the audience. And so I was really, really forthcoming about it. And I was an open book and I've been abused every single way that you could think of. And I'm telling you, if you really, these listeners that are on here right now, I bet you a hundred bucks, one of their friends is dealing with domestic violence as we speak. People don't realize that financial abuse is probably the number one abuse that you can experience. And what financial abuse is, is when a person who could be a stay-at-home mom where the husband is the complete breadwinner, they have all control over all of the assets and they have to ask for permission to get money. That's Hmm. financial abuse. Financial abuse is when your husband fronts you the money to start a business and is like, hey, why isn't that business making money? Why did you give me the money in the first place? I thought we were a team. That's financial abuse. Financial abuse is so many different ways. Like men can use it or even women can use it. And I'm not being biased on men and women because I've helped men get out of relationships where they're being abused, right? So I think we need to educate ourselves 
and the areas of the different forms of abuse. Spiritual abuse is very common where a priest or a pastor or someone in a powerful authority position takes their power and uses it to manipulate themselves to hurt that person. I've had an experience at 35 years age. I'm in federal court right now suing my own church for being abused by a priest that abused myself and other victims. So where did my advocacy work come about? I would say it started in 2020. I was slowly going um, to begin to get EMD or work, which is a modality to help with trauma. And I met someone in SNAP, which is Survivors Networks Against Priest. And I met a very dear good friend of mine, Kevin Bourgeois, who was a president at the time. And he asked me, Jillian, would you be willing to be part of a committee to pass a law in Louisiana to open up the state of childhood sexual survivors? I'm like, sure. What can I contribute here? I contributed a lot because A, I had knowledge of all types of victims. I began working with my cousin, who's a mass tort attorney, and we were taking the Boy Scouts of America cases, and you had men from the ages of 84 just coming out about their abuses, because the natural age of a person to come out as an adult about their abuse is 42 years of age, and that's them becoming comfortable. These men were sharing their lives with me and they had never shared it with their significant others because they were embarrassed, they were shamed. And mm -hmm. so I provided a very comfortable position to allow them to freely speak so that they can heal. Everyone deserves to heal. So through that, um, I actually went through the whole bill process and we passed the bill unanimously opening up the statute of limitations in the state of Louisiana to where there was no limit on when a person could come out about their abuse to sue their perpetrators. Through that experience, I realized that I had been a victim of childhood sexual abuse. At the age of 17, I had just graduated high school. I was living in an apartment and I had met a gentleman who was a pharmacist and he drugged me and I woke up and I was being raped. And I never told my mom and dad, never shared it about it, went to UMC, they gave me a rape kit. I was raped. They gave me the morning pill, the day after pill. That's now plan B. And um, I went on my way. And through that self-discovery of speaking out on behalf of four victims that I knew, two of them I knew personally of childhood um, victims, I was told that I needed to share my own story. And so when I went in front of the Senate, I actually shared the story for the first time of what happened to me. And so through that self-discovery and allowing the platform to where we could talk about our past inflictions, I was then able to begin healing from those past abuse. So I'm very coherent. I'm very supportive of those who reach out. Hey, Jillian, I need some help. I will find you somebody who may not have insurance. There's people out there that will take in non-insurance and on a sliding scale, or they even may take you as a pro bono because they believe that with trauma like that, that they should get some type of help so that the mental illness of trauma won't affect them with the PTSD. Because the bad thing about it is, is when you have been in traumatic episodes like that, it is almost impossible to be fully healed smell, taste, sound, images that may come present, it's like a whirlwind and you're like reliving it. 
I mean, look, I'm going through court right now and I have retold my story so many times and it's brought me to my knees in despair because it's like, how many more times do I have to share my story? First of all, thank you so much for sharing that story. It's an incredible story. I do have a couple follow-up questions. First of all, what is the name of your book? My my Ugly Truth, Life Beyond Abuse. Okay. I'm going to make sure that I link that in the show notes because I'm sure we have some listeners that may want to get it for themselves or they know someone who is struggling with abuse and they would like to share it with that person. My next question is, because we are talking about women and men who are just afraid to ask for help. What do you think the number one reason they might be that? Is it because they feel, because you did say that their abuser, it might get back to their abuser and they're afraid to get physically or mentally hurt. Do you also feel that who is being abused, it's a sign of weakness asking for help? No. Do they feel that? Do I feel like, no, I think that there's a lot of shame and embarrassment that you feel. I know that, gosh, I remember my first husband and the neighbor had called the police and I'm like, oh God, I'm going to have to deal with this. I was so young. I was just like a little baby, you know, I was like 23 years old. I'm embarrassed. I didn't want to like, I was scared to like pursue charges. Honestly, Mm. I don't know why. I don't have that answer for that. Yeah. There was something inside me that was fearful, fearful of what people may think, shame, guilt that you feel. And I think a lot of people feel that a lot of people like myself, they have people that are the breadwinners and it's like, yeah, I have a college degree, but you get so brainwashed. You get the mentality that you're never going to get anything better. You're, you get brainwashed to think that you're just like, excuse my language is a piece of shit. And you don't think you have anything better, but let me tell you right now, I have beat the statistics. I have written laws. I'm a two-time published author. I'm an inventor. I'm the most innovative person you will ever meet, but it took me looking deep within inside myself to see why I didn't give myself the self-worth that I deserved. I had two children at the time. No child deserves to see their mother being beat. No child should see their mother being cursed at, spit at, choked, And the number one sign of someone that's going to kill you is strangulation. Hmm. If there's strangulation involved, I guarantee you that person's going to end up dead. And that is a vital sign to get out. And the way to get out is small steps. Don't go to someone that you know. Go to someone that advocates for this. They'll tell you, have a plan. Always have a backpack in an area for your kids. So when things get heated, you have an extra key outside because a lot of times abusers will try to take your keys, your purse, whatever it is, hide a key, hide a bag and get out. Interesting. And if you can't get out, plan it when they're not there. The hardest time is leaving. It is the most lethal time. And it's statistics will show that when a woman tries to leave or a man tries to leave, that's where violence occurs. They get angry because now they're not in control. A majority of abusers are narcissistic, sadistic, or very power authority and in control. And they've screwed with your mind so much that you do not even, can't even see for past your nose. And it's awful. It's the most awful feeling in the world to feel that you're stuck and you have nowhere to go. I'm here to tell you, you do have somewhere to go. There's something inside you and you can do it. If I can do it, 
anyone can do it. And I've seen so many other people triumph and thrive. And there's three different ways that a victim starts out. You become a victim, you become a survivor, and you become a thriver. I'm a thriver. But I do fall back into sometimes the victimization, especially now with the court. Like, I feel like I'm being bullied and being re-victimized every time I have to retell my story because I'm not there yet. I've been doing EMDR now for four years and it is a process. And I know that I have to be kind to myself and not beat myself up and know that this is going to be a long process. I know that smells, sounds, environments that I'm in, I'm learning to know that, hey, I'm going to be okay and talking to that inner self of who I'm being at that moment, because I might be being 23-year-old Jillian. I might be being 30-year-old Jillian. I might be being 35-year-old Jillian. I might be being 17-year-old Jillian, but really diving deep inside and asking those certain questions, who are you being right now? So that's a lot of things I do talk about in my book, affirmations to tell yourself, something that I do start off in the morning. I meditate, I pray, and I talk to my body and I tell myself three positive things. You're amazing. You are great. And you're going to do wonderful things. And at the end of the day, I do a self-evaluation of what I gave back in that day. And so when you start getting into the mindset of really it's just like the law of attraction. You are going to attract only what you're giving out. So if I'm only attracting the negative, well, you know what's going to happen? Negative is going to just continue to pour in. Those bad relationships are going to continue to pour in. So when you start opening up yourself to greatness and attracting that beautiful, wonderful, potent being, the infinite being that we all are, and you start choosing it, so many magical things start to show up. And I really believe that if you trust in yourself, you find the right advocate, they will walk you through it. But it's just like the cycle of abuse that that guy or that woman will come back and be like, hey, I'm so sorry. Here's a present. Can I make it up to you? And then that victim goes back and the same shit happens all over again. It's a cycle of abuse. It is so repetitive. It's codependency. It's not being assured of your own self. And so you really have to do a lot of self-evaluation and look at yourself and those wounds that we don't want to look at and do a lot of self-reflection and really trust in the Lord. And if you don't trust, if you don't believe in God, you believe in a higher power, trust in that, right? Stick with that and embrace it. A question that has come up after listening to you talking about what these victims should do. What advice do you have for people who suspect that someone they know or someone they love is potentially a victim of abuse? What should they do? I would reach out to that person. Okay. Hey, is everything going, going okay at home? Look, I had a neighbor who knew something was going on. She wanted to call the police several times. I have suspected my own friends who were being abused. I've had private conversations with them. Hey, I know what's going on. I can see it. I see the bruises. I see the isolation. I see you're not wanting to do your stuff. You, you'll, you'll notice it. 
especially if a person's very proactive and then they start isolating themselves and they don't want to be included in anything, you know, that the man or the woman is controlling them. So those are just things that I know as an expert of what's really going on and I'll show up and I'll just listen. And if they don't want to talk, I'm like, Hey, when you're wanting to talk, I'm here, but this isn't good because people need to realize that especially if kids are involved, it shows up in behaviors of those kids, young kids, bedwetting, tantrums, isolation. Hmm. They start doing it in the classroom. I was a former teacher. So there were things that I saw, even as a victim, I knew what was going on, you know, and I couldn't live with myself any longer. I mean, my daughter of all things, I was teaching her that this is okay how a man should treat her. I want my boys to know that you should never, I don't care if the woman's beating you, walk away, be the bigger person. Mm -hmm. Don't engage. One thing my mom always taught me was there should only be one crazy. (sighs) Don't be the other crazy. Because there's been times, look, I'm guilty of it. I'm guilty of it at a young age that I fought back and I shouldn't have, I should have walked away. So anytime that I'm in those type of situations, I have a bag packed. I know where I need to go. I have an escape plan. It's always in the back of my mind, but that's just my survival mentality. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I advise all of my friends and people that I do work hand in hand with what they should and shouldn't do. Oh, such good advice, Jillian just, you, you just said so much. It's like, I'm just trying to wrap my head around <laughs> all of it. So I love you're doing all this advocacy work. You have such an incredible story and you're just fighting for women. So let's shift gears just a tad here. I want to know how your mommy go bag came about. Did it have something to do with always having that bag ready to go? Or is this something totally different that inspired totally different. you to put out there? Okay, totally different. So tell us more about this mommy go bag. So my husband was an active duty infantry man. He was an officer, um, captain with the United States Army. And our daughter was graduating high school. And he was very unhappy in the town we were living in. We have a very blended family. He has two children and I have two children. And we both wanted another child. Lonnie's 10 years older than me, my husband. And I was like, you know what? I deserve another child. I deserve the the ability to bond with this child because the first two, I wasn't able to bond. I was in college. I was going, 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 being abused, being abused, you know? And we decided to have a baby and we were traveling a lot because my husband was military. We were always on the go. Well, I was like the 30 year old mom who was like, oh, I got this. I'm going to just throw like a diaper in my purse and we're going to go. Well, little Lonnie had a problem with motion sickness. And I can't tell you, I can't count on my hands how many times this child has puked everywhere, (laughs) anywhere and everywhere. And I've spent hundreds of dollars at the local like convenience store, right? Trying to fix the problem. And I'm like, I can't do this anymore. Well, my aha moment was we were going to the yellow ribbon for my husband to get his orders from the president of the United States. And we were in Lafayette, Louisiana, where I'm from. 
and it's a very small airport, no longer a small airport, but at the time it was very small and it was very early in the morning. And at the time we did not know little Lonnie had the flu and he loved Lunchables. He should have been like the spokesperson for Lunchables. And it was like eight o'clock in the morning and he's like, I want a Lunchable. And so we got him a Lunchable five minutes before the board airplane, like, you know, they're calling people in stages. Your plane is about to board. Section one, begin boarding or active duty military. My child began to projectile vomit everywhere. I had on a white fur coat, got all over the white fur coat, all over my blouse, everywhere. And say so my husband, being the infantry man he is, picked him up, put him over the um, trash bin. He's still projectile vomiting. I'm like, what are we going to do? Oh my gosh. I don't have anything in the bag. He's four years old. Why would I need a mommy? Like, why would I need a diaper bag for a four-year-old who doesn't poop on himself or pee or any of that, you know, didn't have anything in my like purse or anything. So I'm like, I went to the counter. I'm like, well, do you have like a shirt? Do you have any wet wipes? Lady's like, no, I don't have any of that. I'm like, what? So Lonnie, my husband took little Lonnie into the bathroom, literally last call. They're like boarding my, my other son is like, peace out, like is already on the plane. I'm like, oh my gosh, like I have to get on this plane. He can't go to Washington, D.C. by himself, you know? So big Lonnie comes out and baby Lonnie's clothes are inside out. He's damp. He literally took off all his clothes, washed them in the sink and dried them. Still reeking of vomit. I'm reeking of vomit. I'm like <laughs> having a panic attack, already have anxiety. I suffer with ADD, ADHD and anxiety, okay? Like I went from zero to 10 real quick. And so the whole plane ride to Washington, D.C., I'm like, I got to come up with a solution. So I literally took my notebook because I journal a lot. I'm a writer. And I drew out what I would want in this bag. And so my good friend, Vanessa Copes, um, she owns a media company, Bella Magazine. It's a nationwide magazine. I reached out to her when I got back home and I'm like, I think I have an idea. And she's like, oh gosh, Jillian, I come up with ideas all the time. I'm very just like an innovator, right? Always just writing stuff down. And I'm like, I think I came up with a solution. And she's like, what is your solution? I'm like, a mommy go bag. Well, actually it was iOS in case of an emergency. And she's like, well, what do you want in the bag? And I, I share with her everything in the bag. And she's like, well, let me talk to some mom influencers and see what they think. And she's like, oh my gosh, this is genius. You came up with this great idea. And so, oh, the long journey of creating an invention came about, but we finally, after all the hurdles that we had, we got the bags, they're, they're located in a warehouse in Laga Vista, and we began shipping them out at the end of December. We sold 250 bags when we first launched, and they're slowly just trickling each day. Now, I know that a lot of our listeners, they're definitely going to want to check out your stuff. They're going to want to see the Mommy Go bag, and they're also going to want to get in touch with you if the, they need some advocacy work. Maybe they want to help or they need help from you. They want to get a hold of your book. So where can our audience learn from you? Where can they find you online? So mommygobags.com is where the mommy go bag is. Also, um, I have a lot of people who do handle my socials, but I do answer all of like my DMs. So mommygobags.com. I'm on Instagram at Gigi Jillian. That's my personal, like, you know, you'll see all the stuff that I'm doing, my traveling, just my family in general. 
mommy go bag on Instagram. You can follow. I just started that for that. And then on Facebook, I have my author page, Jillian Edwards Coburn. And if someone wants to directly email me, that's hello at jillioncoburn.com. And I'm really good about responding back to people because if you do need help, I will stop whatever I'm doing and just help and assist. I'll be glad to give you any resources that I can to help you get the help that you need or help you help a friend who may need need help, right? So those are all my handles. (laughs) Awesome. Perfect. I will make sure that all of your information is in the show notes. And Jillian, thank you so much for coming on today, sharing your story. And I really hope that this not only inspires women, but empowers women to love themselves and take back control. Exactly. Because we all matter. You matter. I matter. And every single person who's listening matters. So if no one's told you today, how wonderful you are, here's me to say that you're the best thing that you are and the best things are yet to come for you. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. I can't thank you enough for listening today and supporting this show. The best way to support me and grow the podcast is by leaving a written review on Apple iTunes. I promise you, I read every review and take them to heart. And don't forget, head to bossladyinsweatpants.com to grab all my freebies or hang out with me on Instagram at Allison Scholes. I'll see you soon.